Well, as we jump in, and as you heard Tommy say, I really appreciated listening to that brother and, and how he articulated both the Lord's redemptive work in his life and discipleship. And, and really, that's where we're going to be for the next three weeks, is looking at this idea of discipleship. Uh, and so, uh, as we get going in that direction, we're going to be in the book of Mark, Mark 1, Mark 8, and then looking at the book of First Peter. But as we jump in, I want to... Uh, kind of unpack a story that I began to tell us uh, back when we were studying Second Corinthians this summer, and it was about a man named Justin. Uh, Justin was on staff with the same Christian mission organization that uh, I was for a number of years, uh, about the same time, except he was serving in East Asia, one of our partnership cities, for about four of those years. And as he lived there, he had this moment that really formed him and shaped really the trajectory of the rest of his life. Uh, He tells a story of how he was walking down the street and he saw a young woman uh, who was basically demonstrating for basic human rights. uh, And before anybody could join her, the officials of that city arrested her and just whisked her away, just like that. And that moment changed something in him where he, at at that time, said, hey, I'm actually going to commit my life to be a missionary of a different sort, uh, to do so in the world of justice, seeking justice for other human beings like her, uh, who was wrongfully jailed uh, in that moment. Uh, and so he moved back to the States, back to Virginia, where he was from. He attended Georgetown Law. Uh, he became an attorney. Uh, he found his, his wife, met his wife, got married, had kids, became a lawyer, and life was great, except that it wasn't. He found himself, as he got into the legal world, uh, that he uh, couldn't sleep any longer. The busyness and the frenetic pace uh, was ruining him. Uh, And he found out one day when he was sharing with his peer group, he said, yeah, I just have a hard time sleeping. And after doing a quick poll, he found out he was the only one that wasn't yet on sleeping pills. They're always like, hey, the only way I can sleep is via sleeping pills. And so he's like, no, I'm going to fight that. And so he did. And then one day he ended up in the hospital. His body had totally broken down because of a lack of sleep and and other things. And so uh, he finally said, okay, I need to sleep. I'm going to start taking the pills. The pills didn't work. Uh, and so he needed to combine the pills with uh, several drinks of alcohol before he went to bed just to settle down enough to sleep. In his book, The Common Rule, which I would commend highly to you, he says this, he says, My conversion from the young missionary to the medicated lawyer was now complete. The stubborn question appeared, How did the missionary come to be the one that got converted? He goes on to talk about how his house is decorated with all the Christian scripture. And he went and he had his head full through his reading or through going to church uh, of all of Christ's teaching. Yet his life was following another pattern and that pattern was shaping him in a more powerful way. He goes on to say this. He says, I now see that my body had finally become converted to the anxiety and busyness I had followed through my habits and routines. All the years of schedule built on going nonstop to try to earn my place in the world had finally rubbed off on my heart. My head said one thing, that God loves me no matter what I do, but my habit said another, that I'd better keep striving in order to stay loved. You know what was happening? He was becoming what he followed. He said, I follow Jesus, but his habits reveal quite the opposite. Here's what I would argue, is that we develop habits around what we follow, and those habits form us into whatever it is we follow. We develop habits around what we follow, and those habits form us into looking into whatever it is 
we've given ourselves to follow. Now, let me say this. Can I, can I replace the term, and, and Justin does this in his book, and I love it, replace the term habits with liturgy? It's kind of a churchy word, but a liturgy is basically this, a pattern of words or actions repeated regularly as a way of worship. That last tag is what makes it a liturgy. A pattern of words or actions repeated regularly as a way of worship. We have a liturgy here at New Life. Did you know that? Every time you come, you're going to hear this liturgy of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We start off with the glory of God, a call to worship, the creation. Then we move to uh, the brokenness, the fall, which is our confession of sin. And then we move to redemption, restoration, which is the assurance of pardon. It's not just because we're not creative. It's because we know that the patterns that we set begin to form and shape us. And so every week we've got one hour to put in place this pattern to hopefully shape us into the narrative of Jesus Christ. Because the goal is to shape us to look more and more like Jesus. Have you ever felt the conflict that Justin felt? Here's another question. What's your life's liturgy? And as you follow that thread, what is it revealing that we are truly following? Here's what I would argue. Our hearts are shaped by what we primarily follow. And we are prone to follow many things apart from Jesus. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so today, we're going to talk about discipleship, we're going to start off at brass tacks, and we're going to focus on this idea of following, because what, or we become what we follow. So here's the first question, there's four questions we're going to move through here this morning. The first question is, is what are we actually talking about when we say discipleship? Oftentimes, when we talk about discipleship, it's kind of a churchy word, and we say it, and we often kind of have an idea of what we're talking about. But if you ask 10 people in a room, you're probably going to come up with 10 different answers. And I would say the ministry leadership team of the staff were tasked with wrestling this out. And after reading many books, after interviewing many churches, some of us even took a course in discipleship to begin to wrestle this out. It, it, it doesn't feel as simple as you would think. And so often when we think of discipleship, we think of how we relate to another person. But this morning, I'm going to focus in on uh, our understanding of discipleship for ourselves. And we're going to do it by briefly looking at Peter. Peter, who is one of the first called disciples. And so Mark chapter 1, verse 17 is where we're going to start. So follow along with me. Actually, it's not much of a follow. <laughs> I'm saying follow a lot. Look at that. Uh, so here's what 17 says. Jesus approaches Peter and his brother while they're fishing, and he says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Lord, I pray two things. Well, first, I I pray that you would open our hearts to your word and your spirit. But I pray that, that through your word and through your spirit, you would cause us to follow you that you would make us look more and more like you, Jesus. And for all of us who are following something and it might not be you, Lord, would you pull us to yourself this morning? We love you. Be with us, we pray. In your name, amen. All right, so let's first talk about the term discipleship. Did you know discipleship, that actual word, is never in the Greek in the Bible or Hebrew? Discipleship is never in the Bible. 
However, the word disciple is. Mathetes is the Greek word. It's said 267 times, all of them in the Gospels. And the most common definition, if you just open a Greek dictionary looking at that word, it means one who learns or follows. One who learns or follows. And so can I just give you a simple definition of what being a disciple means and what discipleship means for one who claims to follow Christ. Discipleship for Christians means learning to love and follow Jesus Christ. It's simple. That's about as simple as it gets. It's learning to love and follow Jesus Christ. Now you'll see, you know, I talked about learn and I talked about follow, but I snuck a term in there that is love. And that's because you can't approach God's word and say, well, I'm just going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to keep his commands and do it without love. It's impossible. Because what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so that's why I uh, put that word, learning to love and follow Jesus, because we are called to a person, not just a set of rules. Now, here's the other thing I want you to see briefly, even in this encounter that we see with uh, Peter and Jesus, is that the initiative actually comes from Jesus. Jesus initiates with him, and he says, follow me. And that following is a response, and Jesus is the one who continues his work in him. He says, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. It's an important nuance. So let me offer this at the end of this first question. First of all, we are all disciples of something. The question is what? And let me offer the second thought. To be a Christian means to be a disciple. And there are no disciples of Jesus who are not following him. So the first question, what are we talking about in discipleship? Simply, we're learning to love and follow Jesus. Here's the second question. What are we following then? If we're learning to love and follow Jesus, it's really important that we answer the question, what we're following. And this, I'm going to look at Mark 8. So feel free to fast forward there. Verses 31 to 33. And this is Jesus. He's sitting down with his disciples and he's teaching them some of the most basic things about himself. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So how was Peter doing in his discipleship? Well, he just got called Satan by Jesus. How about that? That's a good week, right, of discipleship. Not at all. So let's talk about the real Jesus. Jesus is sitting here, and really in one of the most succinct teachings of Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, really just lays out to the disciples, this is who you're following. It says in 32, Jesus said it plainly to them. So what did he say in 31? He makes three claims in this one short verse. The first one, he makes the claim that I am a suffering servant. He said, I must suffer and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He is the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. The second claim he makes is that I am the Savior. Now, I'm only picking this up from one word, but he said, they will, I will be killed by them. 
And that's essentially Jesus' death on the cross, where he died to pay the penalty for the sins of those who would call on his name. He said, I came uh, to, to pay, uh, to, uh, I can't even remember the verse, Matthew one twenty one. Anyway, um, <laughs> awkward moment. Anyway, he's basically saying, I've come to, to, to pay for the penalty of the sins of my people. He's saying, I am Savior. The third thing that he says is, I am Lord. I am Lord. He said, I will raise again in three days. And so that is a claim. He's saying, I will defeat sin and death, and I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the Jesus of the Bible. So we can just go to that one verse and say, hey, who is the real Jesus? That's the real Jesus. Suffering servant, Savior, Lord and King. Now here's the problem with following the real Jesus, is that's hard. That's hard. Peter thought it was hard. Can you imagine what Peter did? Peter pulls Jesus, calming storms, uh, you know, healing people, casting demons out, and he rebukes them. He's like, Jesus, you know, that's not who you are. <laughs> and Jesus rebukes him back, and he says, get behind me, Satan. What was the problem? Following Jesus, the real Jesus, is challenging. Sinclair Ferguson offers three things uh, that, that really Peter might have begun to wrestle with in his heart. Now we're assuming this, right? This isn't in the text. But there's sacrifice that's required if we follow that real Jesus. Jesus didn't come uh, as everyone would have expected in power to overthrow the government. He came as a sacrifice. There's submission that's encapsulated in Jesus' claim. Because you know what Jesus was doing? He was fully submitting to the Word of God and His Father by going to the cross. And it also required conformity. Following means conforming more and more to the image of Christ. Because if He laid His life, the King of the world lays His life down for Peter, then it means He owes him his everything. Jesus articulates when you follow something other than the real Jesus, you have a mind that is worldly. He says, get behind me, Satan, in 33, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but the things of mankind. You see, friends, we set ourselves up to make Jesus into whatever image we want him to be, don't we? We move away from the simplicity of who he is. Paul says this. We just studied 2 Corinthians, but this verse has really captured my mind and heart. Paul's saying to this church, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. There is a real danger when we move away at a head and heart level from the simplicity and the purity of of devotion to the real Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this idea. Actually, let me show you one more picture. You're going you're gonna to see this in coming weeks. This is a wrestling with our discipleship pathway, but the only thing I want you to pay attention to right now is what's in the middle. The simplicity of devotion to the real Jesus Christ has to be the center of all that we do as we talk about discipleship and discipleship pathway because that is what we must return to over and over again so that we may be shaped to look more like him. Let's talk about worldly thinking and forming here for just a moment. 
Nielsen came out with a study here recently that there has been a 60% increase in screens and media viewership since the beginning of the pandemic. 60%. What that equates to is the average person spends 90 hours a week on media and screens. And friends, we would be naive to not think we are being formed into whatever the media is that we're imbibing. Here's why. Because every one of those media forms, if it's, if it's news, if it's YouTube, if it's social media outlets, if it's whoever plat- whatever platforms we follow, if it's music, we're being told a story. We're being told a story. Justin Early, I'm going to quote him again. He says, Every story is trying to make us feel busted up about something and makes us fall in love with a solution. The problem is when you stir or, or when you stir up fear over the wrong things or stir up love for broken solutions. We know we've stopped following after Jesus Christ when the real problem has become something other than sin and the true Savior has become something other than Jesus. We have been discipled by some form of the media that we follow to think something else is our ultimate. There's many forms, right? I just mentioned some of them. I would say our music, uh, our social media streams are things that we must pay attention to. I would also say in one of the greatest dangers, there was an article, this line caught me, uh, a friend of mine sent this out, linked to another article. It says, when CNN and Fox News and other partisan ideological ecosystems disciple Christians, well, that becomes one of the greatest meta threats facing the church in the 21st century. I agree. I believe the media, in particular the news, is discipling many of our hearts far more than God's Word and Jesus Christ. Here's the problems with that, is that it is telling us that there's something other than sin that's our biggest problem, and there's something other than Jesus that's the solution. Now, friends, as I mention those things, I don't mean to say they're inherently evil or wrong or bad, and we need to wholesale quit following, reading, or imbibing some of those things. But, but what I am saying is we must be careful to curate what we put into our hearts in these moments, because we are being shaped and formed in these echo chambers that we're living in right now. Everything we follow, be it a news source or be it our fa- a favorite social justice issue of the day, do you know what it's doing? It's telling us a story over and over and over again. And Francis Schaeffer would call these things glorious ruins, right? There are some aspects of these things that, yes, do fall in line with Jesus and the direction that he's headed. But there's also equal guilt and brokenness and ruinousness in them. They are not Jesus. Even if they change their names to Jesus, they're not Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. So here's a question. Are we following the real Jesus? Are we following one that we've made up? One that we've been told this is what Jesus looks like? Or are we following the Jesus of the Bible? If we were to listen to our conversations or read our social media feed, what would others say the Jesus we are calling others to follow is? Thirdly, and this is where I would encourage young people to, to help us older folk lead better and do better, because your native language is media. It just is. And and, and so uh, 
help us figure out what it looks like to curate the media that we take in. You know what I mean by curate? You know, if you think of a, a museum has a curator, you know, there's all these different forms of art all over the world. The curator in the museum has the hard job of making decisions of what are the most important things to put in the museum because you can't put it all in there. I think the same principle would go for our media. So young people, help us. Lead the way because you understand this as your native environment. Help us to curate and understand what it looks like to discipline ourselves in this world. Uh, One quote says, We are guaranteed to be formed in consumption unless we ruthlessly pursue curation. Help us curate, friends. Very briefly, what does it mean to follow? Books have been written on this verse. But Jesus, right after the get behind me Satan phrase, says uh, he called, to the crowd, called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In part, Jesus is saying, lay down your identities And follow me and allow me to become your primary identity. I think identity is one of the biggest things to lean into. I'm wrestling with it myself right now. But I think a lot of the anger and frustrations and and ability to move so quickly to the poles is because we believe our identity is something that we achieve. And the Christian message is fundamentally different because our identity in Jesus is one that we receive. I think we're fighting so much because we feel like we have to protect our own identity, whatever that may be. And I think at least in part what he's saying where he says, um, uh, take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself is, is he's saying, put down your false identities and come to the identity that will give you life. Become dependent on me. Well, final question is, what is the goal of our following? Why are we following? Why are we following? You know, I love Peter. Todd made this comment earlier as he was talking about Peter as a disciple. He has quite uh, a a, a resume of following Christ, doesn't he? Todd uh, names some of it. You know, you've also got the swashbuckling Peter in the garden where they're coming to get Jesus and he goes all Pirates of the Caribbean and cuts off his ear and he's like, I'm with you, Jesus. Then he denies him. And then Paul, he preaches at Pentecost. What a gem. And then Paul says, hey, I oppose him to his face and almost uh, turned to church discipline against him. Like, that's Peter. Peter gives me so much hope. Peter writes a couple of books, and here's what he says at the end. And remember this with the suffering servant part that, that he rebuked Jesus for back in Mark 8. Here's what he says when he's talking about Christians must suffer. That's the context. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, Leaving you, as an exa- leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's the goal of discipleship. We look more like Jesus. We don't look more like a political candidate. We don't look more like a cause. We look more and more like Jesus, who is bigger and more just and more perfect than anything else we could ever call another human being to. And then here's the beauty uh, of the rest of this passage. And again, read this in the lens of Mark 8. It says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, he's quoting Isaiah 53 here, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The guy, Peter, who was straying like sheep, you know what he did? He became what he followed, looking more and more like a suffering servant, eventually to be killed in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are what we are. We become what we follow. And so let me leave you with one more line that a disciple and mentor of a discipler and mentor of mine, Dan Flynn, signs his emails every time he writes me. Uh, he did even this last week. And his last line always sticks with me. He says, I love you, bro. Keep your eyes on the ball. Jesus is the ball. Friends, discipleship is learning to love and follow after Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on the ball. Jesus is the ball. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, I pray that in the midst of being bombarded with a thousand other stories that hold kernels of truth, but aren't the whole truth, don't depict the real Jesus, Lord, would you show us this week what it looks like to follow after you wholeheartedly. Lord, if there is one who is watching or in this room who um, are not disciples of you, who have never made the decision to follow after you, I pray that, that they would simply just pray right now exactly what you shared in Mark 8. Jesus, I believe that you are the suffering servant who died to pay the penalty for my sins, that you are the only way, and that you are the Lord and King over my life. Father, if someone prays that, they are yours. Your Holy Spirit becomes one with them, and you can make them into your image. Lord, for the Christians in the room who find ourselves following after something other than you, and every single one of us do it every single day, woo our hearts back to the real Jesus. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.